Hello, welcome to the latest on light bulb transition. I'm Laura Talvitie and this is PwC's podcast series about the challenges and opportunities when transitioning away from light bulb. Anyone involved in this work knows it's a big challenge across industries, but some say the models are the most complex part of it. In our virtual studio, to explain this bold statement in more detail, I've got PwC partner Chris Hayes, one of our global leads on model risk, and Dominda Kainth, a senior technical specialist, trade at risk measurement from the Prudential Regulation Authority, i.e. the PRA. Dominda works on trading book capital models and model risk. He's also involved in the Bank of England's efforts to support light bulb transition. Previously, he spent most of his career at RBS or NatWest as head of model risk. It's great to have you both here today. Um, Deminda, before we come on to models, you were closely involved in writing the DSCEO letter the PRA and FCA issued in March. So it would be good to spend a bit of time on that while we have you here. Um, so my first question is, why was it important for the regulators to issue another letter this spring? Uh, yeah, thanks very much, Laura. Thanks for, for having me. Um, yeah, maybe just uh, stepping back a little bit um, from our from our standpoint, I guess uh, a poorly executed transition presents uh, a number of financial stability risks. Um, while we sort of recognise that firms have got to rec to manage their risks, there is a, a market wide coordination issue uh, with the possibility that uh, where particular firms aren't ready, for example because of delays in offering new RFR products or because they're behind in developing their systems. Uh, this could all lead to wider issues by year end when um, you know the, the, the G4 LIBOR cease. So we've been looking at this both from a system-wide and, uh, and an individual firm perspective. Uh, then coming back to why this spring, um, we've uh, carried out quite a lot of analysis, speaking to many of the firms with the most exposure um, every quarter, I guess, for, past, for the past year. And uh, we wanted to take this opportunity to highlight uh, some of the things that we felt were important uh, to bring some focus on, uh, to bring some attention on. Um, as with all of these things, the letters are just trying to provide a, a clear and consistent communication. Uh, it means that uh, we convey the same message to all firms so that there's a, a level playing field uh, across the industry. And for what it's worth, I think the UK regulators and working groups are doing a great job in communicating um, the requirements and guidance to everyone. Um, but what's been the response to your letter? Has it... Has it helped to get the attention from the boardrooms? Uh, yeah, I, um, in terms of uh, senior attention, um, I think the transition has had a lot of focus uh, for, from seniors uh, for a while now. Um, we, uh, I, I guess in this letter and, and in other elements of the work, we've looked to leverage the senior manager regime. Uh, we're not really expecting sort of micromanagement from the senior manager, but kind of a, a setting of tone from the top uh you know things like clear project structure governance and you know the senior managers sort of receiving information that they can actually uh, act on uh for the latest letter we uh we we've asked firms for responses and data um we're looking at you know here we're just looking at the firms with the most significant exposures um to show us you know one of the things we're looking at is readiness against the sterling rfr working groups targets uh for, for the end of q1 uh, and we're we're in the process of analysing that data at the moment. 
Um, we're encouraged by the emerging narrative uh, from of firms stopping um, GBP LIBOR issuance, um, although there are still some challenges, of course. Interesting. Are you able to say anything more on those challenges? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I, I guess um, the letter sort of represents something of a, of a pivot point, really. Um, what uh, we've been looking at is um, very much sort of establishing um, sort of uh, establishing sterling Sonia markets at the end of Q1. Um, and that, you know, that there's been some very good progress in that, uh, and we're encouraged by that. Um, and I guess the pivot point is now we're sort of looking for firms to start actively transitioning as much of their legacy exposures as possible, i.e. moving away from LIBOR onto, onto RFR products. Um, and to support that, I think what we're looking for is for firms to sort of start sharing detailed plans, um, showing a holistic view of how they intend to reduce their risks and exposures over the remainder of the year, uh, and to sort of show how they're going to track uh, against those. Yeah, that's going to be a big new step for the firms to do. Um, and, and one of the area covered in the letter was models, which is the topic of the day. Uh, yeah, um, one of the key strands uh, that we focused on uh, all the way through last year was very much uh, operational readiness. Uh, and of course, sort of un underpinning that really has been readiness from a modeling perspective from just a whole range of angles, right? In terms of the new RFR based products, uh, approaches to risk measurement uh, and management, which you've got to change, uh, funding risk, or uh, indeed from a capital modeling perspective as uh, as how you measure interest rate risk changes or switches over. Um, again, we've been very encouraged by firms' responsiveness. Um, I think everyone recognizes that getting models ready by the end of uh, this year is going to be very challenging. Absolutely. Um, Chris, I, I mentioned before, you work with our clients on the model side of the transition. And I heard that you recently helped two global banks uh, assess the their preparedness for model changes. Um, so I just wanted to ask a few questions on that. But before we get into why models are so impacted, can we just set the scene briefly? Can you tell us which models we're talking about? Thanks, Laura. I'd just like to start by saying also thanks for having me today and great to be here today with both yourself and Daminda. I think it's important for me to start by saying that models can be impacted for all firms, not just banks. And, and it's all firms that need to address the changes needed for their models from LIBOR transition. And, and also, I, I want to, to emphasize that that is both internally developed models or those models that are sourced from a vendor. Now I finally get to your question, which is which sort of models? Well, there's many types of models impacted. The most obvious ones are going to be the pricing and risk management models and regulatory capital models that we're going to talk a lot about today. But it's important to note that there can be impacts to many other types of models. For example, credit models, treasury models, asset and liability models, you know, and there's others, but that's just to name a few. I think it's also interesting to give our listeners an idea of how many models are impacted and and it varies a lot but i've come across firms large banks with you know 
up to two thirds of their their model inventory impacted by LIBOR transition, and that can be you know well over three thousand models. So you know it can be potentially significant. For any of our listeners who haven't thought about this before, then just think about you know how many models include projecting interest rates and or discounting a risk-free rate, and and think about how LIBOR has really been the common rate used for these processes and these purposes. Understood. But what makes models such a special case? Why are all these types of models being so impacted? The fundamental reason why so many models and model types are impacted by LIBOR transition, it really comes down to that fundamental difference between LIBOR and the replacement rates. So let's just talk about those differences and then why they impact models so much. And let me use Sonia, for example. So Sonia, it's an overnight rate, and therefore products need to reference a backward-looking rate. That compares to LIBOR, which is a forward-looking term rate. Sonia is largely risk-free, whereas LIBOR is a, has some degree of bank sector credit risk in there. And these differences are well publicized and we've we've heard all about them right the way through the transition because they drive so many different challenges. In the model space, what these differences mean that models need to ingest a new type of data, they need to model interest rates in a different way. And also in lots of cases, it means that models now need to calculate new product payoffs. And that is why so many different models or model types need to be completely redeveloped or partially redeveloped through time. So you're, you're exactly right, Laura. The, the LIBOR transition does have the potential to create pressure, sometimes significant pressure, on model development, model validation, and model governance. Yeah, I know we say this in every episode, but the time is quickly running out on this. Um, Deminda, the PRA is engaging with mar- with the market participants on this as well, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, probably in two different ways, really. Um, so we've been, you know, as I, as I sort of spoke about in the in the work leading up to the DCO letter, we've been uh, very heavily engaged with firms uh, almost on a quarterly basis uh, on the operational readiness part. So looking at whether or not uh, firms have uh, implemented new products uh, and the and some of the modeling changes that they need to to support those so that's one piece I guess there's also you know perhaps sort of the more detailed work on, on in terms of changing capital models um, that's um, almost been uh, a separate standard of work which is which is part of the the wider supervisory initiative um, so, um, you know, to, to put that into context, I guess the uh, Sterling Risk-Free Rates Working Group wrote to us uh, back in 2019 uh, and kind of in response to that to that letter, we, we laid out uh, a programme of work uh, focused, you know, much more tightly on, say, uh, the, the capital models uh, and I suppose the models which sort of feed into, into those. Uh, and that work's been ongoing, I guess, over the past uh, two years, and has looked at uh, uh, at a number of things uh, over that period. So, um, you know, probably perhaps the most recent thing that we've done, we sort of 
conducted detailed meetings with many of the uh, IMA approved firms, so the inter internal model approved firms, uh, to understand uh, what changes they're going to make uh, and the upstream dependencies in their capital models. Uh, and also uh, in terms of things like market developments, um, you know, what impact that has in terms of when they're going to be able to make their changes and also, you know, the wider systems readiness perspective. Um, now, in terms of, uh, you know, just going back to, you know, the, the end of year being very close. Yeah, absolutely. It's very close, uh, especially in sort of model approval terms. So what we've tried very hard to do is to is, you know, in, in the round of meetings, which has just gone, is to sort of understand what firms are planning. Uh, we've tried to provide some early feedback on uh, on what, um, you know, what what revisions they are making, uh, what sort of analysis um, uh, we'd, we'd hope that they'd carry out. Um, all of that is kind of directed to hopefully when, when firms are submitting uh, their model changes towards the end of the year, um, we're well cited on the sorts of changes that they're making and uh, and can help um, um, approve or, or 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 get through and uh, feedback any issues uh, quickly uh, and, and and ensure we reach a, a good outcome by the end of the year. That's good news. The regulators have defined pretty clearly what needs to be done and by when. But Chris, are you seeing anything different in the market? That's a good question, Laura, and it's quite a broad question. So I'll have to I'll have to generalise uh, if that's okay. I mean, as you would probably expect, the, it's the banking industry that's that's most advanced on models. So if it's okay, I'll I'll just focus on that banking. Th thinking about that question, I mean, the banks I speak to, you know, continue to focus and progress their their libel libel models work streams. And I'd say that, that that many or most do seem to be relatively confident that they'll be ready in time. Having said that, you know, to balance that comment, at, at the same time, I'm seeing more and more of how banks, you know, do continue to raise up key challenges that they're starting to to contend with as 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 the end of the year, you, you know, comes and looms on the horizon. And and and. You know that's not surprising. I mean, Dominda and I were talking about this earlier. You, you know, th there's a significant challenge here in the size of the risk that will be transferred over to new models. I, I think the other thing is that that because of because time is tight, that there's lots of key dependencies for model developers and model validators that that that, that just haven't played out yet, but but will play out in coming months. Yeah, and you also mentioned model development and model validation before. So perhaps we break those down and discuss one by one. So firstly, what are you seeing around model development? I think I've probably seen three key themes relating to the building and developing of models. Uh, one key area that has come up over the last year, having conversations with model developers, front office strats in banks, for example, is, is that need for liquidity in, in non-linear markets. You need that you need that liquidity in order to, to build the models, to make the trades, and to really calibrate those models. So very, very pleasing to hear that over the last couple of days, it, it, it sounds like there's been success um, in, in, in Sonia Swaption Day and, 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 that, and a pickup in in Sonia Swaption. So I think that liquidity is going to really help on the model development side. 
The other, the other, another key area that I often hear about from my clients is all around product conventions. Now, clearly there's been a lot of progress here with the nonlinear working groups. There's still a couple of products where, where those conventions are still to come through. Uh, for, exa uh, for example, range accruals and averaging swaps. And sometimes some of the model developers that I speak to often say it, it feels like they're a bit in limbo with these sort of products. So, you know, banks, product users, regulators, the market, we need to continue to, to, to work on, on landing on those conventions as time is obviously getting more compressed. And then I guess you know, the final common point that I'm hearing at the moment from, from model developers is, is, is the modeling of visitor fallbacks, which, which in itself is non-trivial and there's quite a lot of work there. But particularly that linkage from models to systems where in the system space, you know, it's, the, the work around fallbacks is potentially significant. From a regulator's point of view, Domenda, do you agree with Chris's views? And what are the next steps and key actions you are expecting firms to take now on the model development side of things? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think um, Chris um, makes some very good points there. Um, uh, you know, absolutely, we sort of recognise, uh, and and th and this is perhaps why we we you know we've we've been looking so closely at the development of uh, front book products um, because we recognise that uh, one of the key mitigants around uh, modelling risk or or modelling um, phenomena is, of course, uh, front book uh, development of front book products. You know. Deep and liquid markets are are so so important. So that's why you know the points that Chris raises about the need for um, you know some encouraging signs on sunny options, uh, the need for sort of further nonlinear markets uh, development. We're 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 you know we're, we we know that people are very heavily involved in that and really pushing for that. And um, you know this is something which um, is is important over the course of the the next quarter, uh, next two quarters. And you know, heavily supported by by the bank. Um, yeah, so I guess um, you know, just turning back to the risk models, I, I guess we've um, you know we've we've had the we've had the the cross uh, discussions. Uh, we've tried to feedback what we see as the issues. I think it's now a little bit uh, in firms' court. Um, there's a lot of the heavy lifting which they need to do in terms of you know the developments that we've uh, that they that they've been talking to us about uh it's about doing that work and then sort of sending that on to us um over the course of the next uh, few weeks few months um and uh, and for us to then start to 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 review that um uh, towards towards the end of uh, q3 um i think the other piece of work that we are doing i guess uh, in a similar way to um the cross firm uh, or the discussion with a number of firms on the uh, IMA models, the sort of VAR and stress VAR, we have been doing uh, we've we've been doing exactly the same uh, analysis on firms' counterparty credit risk models, uh, the so-called IMM models. Um, that's probably a, a quarter behind, um, just because of the way we phased it, uh, and um, we're expecting to to go back to firms with any thoughts, any issues in the same way that we did for the IMA models. We're going to be looking to do that and probably do that um, it, towards the end of June, I guess. Um, uh, it's, you know, we've done a lot of the meetings and I think we're now sort of uh, distilling that into what we think the uh, points of feedback are. 
and uh, that will be very useful for many market participants. Um, so after the model is developed, it needs to be validated. So what about the validation then? Is that a significant task? Hey, Dominic, shall I, shall I take this one and have a go at this one? Yeah, I think so. Great. So look, I would say that validation definitely shouldn't be underestimated. You know, as, as Dominda and I have been explaining, model, valid, model developers are, are very dependent on the market and, and validation are very dependent on those modelers. So what I'm, I guess I'm trying to say is that, they, that they're, they're in a downstream position and they could potentially get squeezed with, with a high volume of validation work. May not, but, 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 but it, it could happen. So that's where we're seeing validation teams you know carefully think about how to manage that potential wave of model validations that, that could arise and, and that's all about having a, a clear and robust plan and just making sure that their BAU validation processes have got the right level of challenge around them you know just to make sure that that, that, that any changes to models from the developers, from from sometimes in the front office, you, you know that, that that second line of defense, that that model validation team are, are, are making sure they're doing the right level and appropriate level of work. I'm also hearing a lot, a lot about challenges like book rates for model governance. Um, have you had discussions with firms about that recently, Chris? Yeah, very common. I mean, I think the key message is. Uh, is that firms that they need to make sure that their model validations are fit for purpose and that they're well prioritized which is really the point i've just made i think i'll just emphasize that you know that they do really need to have strong model governance and i say that on a on a podcast with with, with suminda but but it, but, it, but it really is true what, what i'm also seeing is is some firms starting to think about what that plan might be if they do think there might be a crunch and, and, and they're thinking about how they can get through those validations in time for the transition but making sure that they have that you know that, that, that sufficient level of control and that they can remediate any gaps in a way that that, that makes sure they're still ready on time uh, yeah, I mean, from our perspective, the transition introduces a lot of changes. Uh, some of it's quite straightforward, some of it's quite subtle. Uh, so in some cases, um, so things like transfer of risk onto time series, which weren't, uh, which previously were immaterial, sort of uh, long dated um, Sony, for instance, or the changeover in fixings as a result of these fallback, they're quite unique. Um, what we're after, of course, is a good model for governance framework. Um, should support uh, appropriate scrutiny uh, and it should focus on the right questions. Um, you know, things like quantifying the uncertainty. Um, we want firms to revisit um, their models as the markets bed in. Uh, and we want to try and do that rather than just a, an exercise in just producing a review. Um, you know, it's, it's important that uh, the governance framework supports firms asking the right questions uh, and, and sort of coming up with the right answers, the, the, the sort of appropriate quantum and where there isn't a right answer because, you know, the historic data doesn't exist, sort of providing a, a sort of a, a suitable measure of what the uncertainty is uh, and, and allowing controls around that. Thank you both. It's been a really interesting conversation on this episode.
Um, my final question um, will be for both of you. And I don't want to end the conversation with the negative, but do you reckon the market will be ready in time? And what are the key concerns that keep you awake at night at the moment? Chris, if you go first, please. <laughs> That's a good question, Laura. I, I would say that many of the clients that I speak to still expect that all the changes to models and everything that goes with that can be done as part of business as usual. And, and I can see why they say that, you know, they're very well organized and, and they have a good plan. But I do think that for some of those clients, it won't be the case that they can do it under BAU. And for those, I do wonder if it could end up being quite a challenging end of the year, making sure that they get all their models ready for the transition. Uh, and I guess I'll just reflect back on a conversation I had this week with, with, with one of my clients, came up with a really nice analogy that, that I liked. And what he said was that, you know, moving all his, his bank's uh, models over from LIBOR to the new RFRs, he said it was a bit like asking everyone in the UK to wake up on the 1st of January and start driving on the right-hand side of the road, which, you know, whilst might sound simple, the more you think about it, the, the, the harder it could get. That's that's a brilliant analogy. I may actually steal it from you. What about um, you, Deminda? Yeah, in terms of, um, you know, concerns or what keeps us awake, I guess going back to what Chris was saying earlier, um, you know, in terms of, uh, I, I guess as a regulator, you're downstream of um, when firms conclude their development and their their validation, so, and uh, and uh, but the the end of year timeframe still sits for us as well. So I guess uh, we we that there is that potential for being squeezed. Uh, I think we've um, obviously tried very hard to sort of mitigate that risk, um, you know, through the conversations that we've had uh, with firms. Um, I guess we'll probably have a better idea over the next few weeks as uh, as firms plans start to come in. Um, I think I'm been very encouraged as i say with firms responsiveness and and how they're and how they're looking to proactively manage their their model pipelines with us so that's that's been very good um you know the positive uh quietly hopeful that the switch in sterling liquidity progress in non-linear markets uh will mean that the the modeling work comes to a successful conclusion um um, you know, and that's just recognizing, you know, what's been done by so many people over the last uh, uh, last few years, almost um, sort of glass half full, I, I think. That's a great conclusion, I, although I wish we could continue. But unfortunately, we are just out of time for this episode. Thank you both for providing your views today. And thank you to our listeners. Please get in touch if you have any questions. You can also sign up to a semi-monthly market update newsletter, which covers the latest iPod developments globally. And please subscribe to our podcast for future episodes as well. But for now, that's all from me. Thank you, everyone.